Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Minhaj and I'm the CEO of CIDA, which is an AI-enabled academic and industrial research agency. I think today is a very special day for me because I get to interview someone that I hold in very high esteem and I've learned very much from his videos and not only his videos but the psychology that he puts behind teaching with passion and interest and love and you can feel that when you watch his videos. My guest Dr. Luis Serrano is an accomplished educationist, a quantum scientist, a wonderful human being and a kind soul. So without any ado, let me add our favorite Dr. Luis Serrano. Welcome Dr. Luis. Thank you very much, Minhaj. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. I'm a big fan of your podcast, so it's it's great to talk to you. You know, it's it's a very special day for me also because um, I can tell you, when I got into uh, machine learning and um, data science, I wanted to find some videos um, or a teacher who does not actually tell me about the equations, differential equations, and um, algebra and geometry and everything that you would need for data science, but also tell us the bigger picture of how things work. And your channel was something that I found extreme solace in out of the crowd of uh, complicated numbers. And one of the things that you actually have uh, written on your um, profile is that learning mathematics and physics um, and science should not be complicated. Um, and we're going to be talking a lot about um, this today. But let's talk about um, how did the journey start? Introduce Colombia to me. Oh, Colombia is a, is a wonderful place. Uh, I'm actually there right now. I live in Canada full time, but I'm spending like, a period of time here here in Colombia. And uh, yeah, growing up here was uh, was wonderful. It's a very, you know, people are close to each other. So I learned to, to sort of, I, I, I really close to family, close to friends, and uh, sort of you keep that with yourself. And uh, yeah, I, I had my upbringing here until I finished high school. So I'm very, very close to, to this culture. I only found out today that um, there was a time when Colombia, Ecuador, and Venezuela was one country. Do you read that uh, anything about that in school? The Grand Colombia, yes, and Panama was there too. Uh, yeah, yeah, we read, we, we studied a lot of that in school and how Things got divided after independence, etc. It's interesting. Tell me about your upbringing in Colombia, because from what I um, hear, um, it has seen a lot of unrest during the years in terms of drug trafficking, illegal immigration with um, rebels, uh, FARC army, um, a lot of going back and forth between government and um, the revolutionary forces. Um, I assume that um, it, it was a very unstable situation to grow up in. Uh, what are your memories when growing up in Colombia in, the, in your time? Yes, the, the 90s were quite rough, 80s and 90s. Uh, of course, it, uh, the, the root of everything is, is oppression and oligarchy, right? If you, if you keep all the power and the money, the power in, in the hands of very few and leave very little for the rest, then there, there is going to be a lot of unrest in the in the population and, and and symptoms will occur from that and so after many many years of of that oppression uh just things things got created there 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 armed revolutionary forces were a a, a a a very bad 
um, sort of rea reaction to this that that got out of hand. Uh, drug trafficking in the '90s was was also very very rough, and and the policies of fighting against the drugs and the war just, just created a a horrible scenario. And people in Colombia were the the victims of that. Um, I was in a special place in Bogota where it was the conflict was not right in front of me, but it was it was there. I mean, you would hear bombs and you were hear of uh, people getting kidnapped or killed. It was it was uh, it was a rough time. So I think now it's uh, it's much better, but there's still there's still problems. And um, what I admire from people here is the resilience, right? How people just say we've gone through a hard time, but we're gonna keep keep fighting and keep smiling and and uh, that's that's quite amazing. But yeah, I mean the it was um it was a it, it, it was a tough time, and since you hadn't seen anything different, that's kind of how I how I felt it all the time. And when I lived in different places, I I got to contrast it, and and it was quite uh, it's quite interesting. Luis, what do you think uh, people learn from adversity and poverty and unstable situations in life? I think you you learn to appreciate things a lot more when you have them. I think I think some adversity is needed because if you never have it, you never really know what you have. You never really appreciate it. When you have privilege, you're the last person to notice it. Everybody else notices it except for you. And for you, it's just it's just normal, right? That's that's life. But when you have when you when you suffer through adversity, then you you understand what's important, right? And the people around you and the 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 things that that you have you you appreciate them much more so i think to me it's been helpful all my life to to have lived that a little bit and 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 be able to to appreciate things better did you have other siblings growing up at the same time only child only child yeah okay. yeah <laughs> spoil spoil <laughs> uh, well that kind of explains the fact that um you went to colegio san carlos yeah which is one of the best schools to go if you live in Bogota. Um, how did you actually manage to afford that? I mean, were you in middle class or do you have a privileged, uh, spoiled uh, yeah. upbringing? I wasn't rich, spoiled, but I was middle class. And uh, this was a private school that was particularly cheaper than all the other private schools. So my mom was crossing fingers that I that I get into that one because otherwise it'd be hard to get in, to go to another private school. Uh, I mean, yeah, it was. Uh, it it is. Um, it was a good school that puts emphasis in in mathematics, which I found that uh, it was useful for me. What did your parents do? I uh, work at a bank. Yeah, so I grew okay. up with my my uh, my mom. They were divorced, and I my mom worked at a at a bank. And so sometimes she'd take me to the bank with her. So I, I was there since I was little. <laughs> I mean, is is that partly the reason why you are so good at mathematics? I wonder. I don't know. I did. I did see a lot of sheets with numbers growing up. <laughs> so, what did she do? She was accountant there, or? Yeah, she was a, a branch. Uh, she got the branch manager. At the end, she was uh, just an employee in the office. Okay. And yeah. how was your childhood like, being um, a single child studying in uh, Colegio San Carlos, and then? Uh, did you have friends or you were always an introvert i i was always very introverted i i had my friends and uh, my very special friends which are um which are still still my good friends but yeah i was always the the sort of nerdy kid uh very introverted and it's a school of boys uh sort of uh 
very much very macho boy so it was, it was a lot of bullying i was i was bullied uh growing up and uh in in school but uh you know other than that is i guess pretty normal i had a, a up and down periods of doing well and not well in school but in general i was always sort of the the quiet kid with glasses that you see on the that's sort of the nerdy tv kid <laughs> it's very interesting you know bullism kind of um especially associated with people who are introvert maybe you know they put up a lot with um other people's transgressions um in some way um yeah and i was just wondering uh, were you able to cope with that because one of the lessons that i um learned from uh, a, a very wise old man that you know someone bullies you um what you do is you take a hammer you hit them and you run <laughs> so what was the I best advice you got yeah where were you when i needed <laughs> advice <laughs> no uh, no maybe not in colombia <laughs> because you know <laughs> no i find that i i was very hard at the time because that's your entire universe right that's your entire world is is that so it's and and you need the social aspect a lot especially growing up so it's it's your everything and so it's uh it's it's kind of rough and and so it it i think it made me a, a tougher person later i think there was i kind of went from one to the other one where i just wouldn't put up with anything uh in in adulthood for a while and then i kind of mellowed down but i find it no i look back and i think it's uh in, in some way there's there's a silver lining in everything and i i noticed that it it makes you it, it's kind of a controlled situation of abuse you're not gonna be killed or anything you're not you know it's it's just gonna be like you suffer the emotional abuse and and the physical abuse but it's controlled it's still it's still not uh gonna get out of hand and so in some way you're you're put into a situation that that i think makes you more empathic in the future i feel like i that helps me a lot to to have empathy with others and when i see the world the world situation and i see people that are st struggling much much harder than than being bullied right but but when i see those situations um i can sort of relate the stress they feel a little bit right i, I can imagine it uh and so it makes you it makes you more empathic and it makes you not want to make anyone feel like that so in some way in some way i'm thankful that it was sort of a a controlled stress situation <laughs> Would you agree with the statement that every person has a monster inside and there's a capability of nurturing your animal side and your um, human kinder and spiritual side? And the challenge in life is to actually feed the angel and not the monster. Do you think that that, that is in some way correct? Yeah, I think we are, uh, we are a, a product of who we are inside and the situation that we grow up in right and who we are is definitely those those two aspects and the, and the situation that we grow up in can can turn us into into one or the other one so i think that's why it's important that you know uh society does is is kind to everyone and that and that we are able to get the best out of out of every person how did you and when did you decide to go to canada uh, for studies i believe it must have been a a very important decision, um, both in terms of finances and economics. And uh, you, you are also son of a single mother, and, and yeah. you know, you, you, she must have been dependent on you. Uh, so it, it must have been a big call. How did that happen? 
Yeah, it was a long process. Uh, when I was in, in Colombia, I was I was doing the math Olympiads. And so that uh, that was a, a very good opportunity when you were uh, when you were doing well in those that they you would sort of be open to scholarships and things like that. So many of my uh, fellow friends uh, from the Olympics were would would get the scholarship would go to the U.S. or something. So I always had that in my mind, and I thought it's a it's an opportunity that I want to uh, to take if if there is there because I'm. I may not have it in the future. It's sort of an open door that I want to take. So I, I consider the U.S. Uh, the U.S. was was expensive, uh, more expensive. So I I looked at Canada as well, and uh, it was a family decision as well. At the same time, my mom was thinking about moving. You know, the '90s in Colombia, as I said, it they were rough, and if you sort of saw an open opportunity, you would you would take it. And so I started. Uh, applying to places in Canada and, and got some scholarships and it we decided that it was that it was doable. And so I embarked and my family embarked a little a little later. And uh yeah there there I was. It was a it was a great decision. It was a hard hard uh, transition of cultures and and everything, but it's uh the best decisions I've I've taken. I, it was really fun. Also I think in the culture in the late 90s, if you say you're going to study mathematics, it was seen strange, right? It was like, you're going to starve to death. And so I got a lot of that. Um, Colombia, there was a lot of like, you know, study something that, that gives you money. Uh, and, and I was like, I, I think I'm not going to make money with something <laughs> I'm terrible at. And so that, that sort of ignited the, the idea of, of leaving to places that maybe were more I'd have more of a chance as a pure mathematician, whatever it is that I end up doing as a pure mathematician, right? <laughs> I didn't know at the time what what you could do. Um, I don't. Know, every time I talk to it, um, someone who is from an immigrant background, um, hard work, blood, sweat, and um, tears uh, story. Um, it, it sends me back to my own story, and um, I, I know that you know the the first flight when you take it out of your comfort zone it, it's almost a crowdfunding project so how did you actually get the money um like um in my case i had you know money from flight from my dad and you know i had the expenditure for someone else and you know then my brother and everyone else so it's, it's kind of a family project how's that in yeah. colombia my mom made a huge effort i think she she put a made a big bet and so she put most of uh, what we had for the beginning. And then uh, once I was in Canada, then I would work on the summers. So I would work on, on research. And Canada's much cheaper um, tuition than the US. I think in the US would have been difficult. But uh, the time it sort of worked out that with that investment from my mom and, and, um, and the work I was doing in the summers, uh, things, things work out. Uh, sort of added up but uh yeah it was it was not easy you know spe especially for her so i'm always very very thankful to the effort she made how was culture different um once you got to canada yeah it was um it was very different i mean i think uh i i try to get the the best of both worlds right and so in colombia there's one one thing is that mentality tends to be only one one mentality. I think if you 
think a certain way, then you're fine. But if you deviate from that, it's very strange. And so you just don't deviate for that. So my 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 mentality was unique. Well, I mean, not unique. The opposite of unique. It was it was only one uh, from uh, the same from everybody. Whereas I noticed that in Canada, you you could have many different points of view. And so I started just meeting people who thought very different than me in, in many ways. And I was like, oh, that's strange. And I started getting getting challenged uh, and, and challenging my own views uh, in any in anything, social, political, anything. So it was a very op eye-opening experience for me to, to meet people who thought so different from me. So uh, yeah, yeah. And as I said, I try to get the best of, of both worlds, right? So I, I, I took the things of, of the Colombian culture that I like the most uh, the the unity the, the, the everything and and then I took the things of of Canadian culture that I like the most which is the the open mindedness uh, that that there is there right okay so if I were to ask you to choose one good um, and one uh, bad thing about both Colombia and Canada would that be one good and one bad thing mm -hmm. uh, I I think it, it in in Colombia, one good thing is you just you're just very close to people. I mean, everybody you know, your neighbor, you know, your entire family. You're always there. There's always a crowd, and you and you need that. I mean, I think uh, a lot of rates of depression may uh, occur because of loneliness, and so that you don't get in Colombia. When I'm here, I'm just surrounded. Uh, you always sort of socialize very. You go to the back and socialize with the person that you're just everywhere. So so you need that. That's one good thing. Uh, one not so good thing about me is, is, is yeah, the, the mentality is, is sort of uh, very traditional. It's it's conservative and and it's not like it's not so open to to new things. And so uh, there's there's things that I'm not, I'm not a, a big fan of, right? I mean, I like to yeah, I, li I like to think differently. I like to. Like it's 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 you, it, Colombia is, is is very stratified, and so you hang out with people in your strata, not not higher, not lower, and it's very hard to move within them. And so it's a social structure and a an economic structure that is settled for hundreds of years. Uh, I don't like that because there's so many people that could, you know, deserve many opportunities, and and it's hard for them to get it right. So I would like a I like a society that's that's just more equal and where everybody gets the the same opportunities, right? And that's one thing I like about Canada. In Canada, there's there's a lot more. There's ov obviously there's social differences and there's financial differences between people humongous, but there, there, there tends to be less. There tends tends to be more of a of a level playing ground, uh, and you can. I guess it's it's more it's a little more based on you if you if you succeed or not, right? And there's sort of opportunities for everybody. This healthcare, education is more affordable. I really I really like those things, and I I enjoyed them when I was there. So I I'm very thankful. But I I enjoy the fact that everybody gets them, right? Um, so so that's something I I loved about about Canada, and and what I think would it could be better in Canada. It's uh, what I had in Colombia, which is the, the the unity, right? Like people tend to be more distant. This happens in Canada, US, you know, kids leave the house. They they don't uh, talk to parents that much. It's uh, you don't know your neighbor. It's it's a little bit of that distance. And I, 
Um, I was lucky to find that with, you know, I had friends from everywhere here, which is oh, one thing I liked about Canada is that there's, there's people from everywhere. There's uh, people from so many nationalities and you get to meet them and it's sort of, uh, you get to have a, a worldview. Uh, so I, I had, I had some of that, but yeah, I did, I did lack some human interaction when I moved here because yes, there was just more distance. I guess they totally get you, you know, people like us who share a culture which is very vibrant and talkative um, and sharing and, uh, you know, put a lot of emphasis on uh, emotional well-being and collectiveness. They find it themselves in a very odd position, uh, even though the uh, playing field is very level. Um, so I studied in Sweden and you know, it's as cold as Canada, I guess. So this this possibility of um, genuine human interaction um, on the level where it, it, it's it's more collective is probably something that's missing. And I was just wondering, um, did you stumble upon a situation or you got yourself to the point where um, loneliness has become um, a huge problem that's coming in between your productivity and your um, life trajectory, because, because I know from the fact that uh, if you look at the uh, mental disorders or depression or um, borderline statistics, Western world is way higher. Let's say the Western educated industrialized rich countries, they tend to score a lot higher when it comes to reported depression cases. And from our experience, I guess, uh, that's, that's, that's very obvious. But do you do you think that, you know, this can, this relative felicity and opulence can become a curse itself absolutely absolutely i think uh the, the the western society has a very sort of worked centric approach and your your identity gets defined by what you do a lot and and less by who you are and we tend to get so much into it that we tend to just start working really hard and and uh just uh don't don't interact with others so that that definitely creates a lot of a lot of depression. I, I myself has have suffered depression in, in long periods of my life uh, because of that. You know, I mean, I, I to a new place and I and I do move a lot to a new place, and you have nobody for a while, and it was like super cold and no sun, and and you're working hard. Like it, it's very easy to to get to get depressed, and it's it's hard to in order to to pull out of it. You you have to challenge the surroundings because everybody's in the same in the same place right and you had you were in academia as well and it's also a place for that is easy to get very isolated if you're using doing your own research or your own work it's it's easy to to get uh to get in your own bubble and and then depression just it's a an effect of that right yeah i'm, I'm i totally get it and i was just wondering you followed the traditional um, hardworking, um, brilliant uh, immigrant who comes to university and does fantastic work, but th there's no gap in between your studies. So it's just bachelor's and a master's and there's a PhD and there's a postdoc and then you go to Google. Um, I was just wondering, did, did, did you ever get to a point where you, and we're going to be talking about, um, you, you've talked about it in your previous podcast that, you know, you, at some point you got disillusioned with the fact that you know you had to be a professor i mean your love was for teaching was there but then of course you know it's a long and fruitless journey at some point and you think you know 
you start having the urge to live a better life. So yeah. put it that way. So I'm just wondering, did you actually have time in between to travel, you know, to think about your own self and, you know, do the journey inside instead of, you know, the journey to social prosperity? Yeah, that's a great question. I've, I've given myself time, but I never had that had the chance of taking a long break, right? Like a year of going somewhere and traveling. Um, I, I did switch a few times on direction because I, I was just look, made an introspection and, and realized that some things were in my thing, right? When I was in academia, which was sort of my dream for the entire time to be a professor. Um, and I started finding out that the research in, in, in pure mathematics was wonderful, but not was not what was filling my cup, right? It was it was difficult. It was um, sort of doing, I was doing the same thing. Uh, it, it was just not, yeah, I wasn't doing it for me. And I, and I didn't think I was, you know, producing the most amazing, you're just putting okay research, but certainly um, it wasn't worth it. The, the sacrifices that you have to make, at least, at least for me, for our cities, and, and that's great. But the sacrifices of moving to different places, living in places you want to live for a year, putting your life on hold until you get that sort of prized professor position, uh, just weren't outweighing the, they weren't outweighed by, by how much I enjoyed it because I was, I was just enjoying it. Okay. I enjoyed the teaching a lot more than I enjoyed the research. And that's when, uh, that a combination of that and, uh, and the scarcity of, of professor jobs that I, that I was finding on my search and this, that I wasn't getting many calls or anything just made me look inside and say, okay, do I, maybe I should do something else. That's when I uh, decided to to work in tech. And then even after tech, I had another transition because as a programmer, I was not not very happy and not producing as fast as I could have, or as I should have. I was uh, learning a lot, but certainly not like pr writing production code wasn't uh, the thing for me. and. So I was. I also had another introspection of searching. What is it that I really want? And that's when I stumbled into teaching. That's when I looked back and I thought, teaching really is my thing. Because in all the periods of my life that I've done, so so, I've always done well teaching. So, I. That's when I decided to go for that. And so far, I've, I think that's when my life started. Really, like when I started realizing that I was doing good things. No. Literally everyone, every professor that I've interviewed on my podcast, um, and they're very accomplished both in terms of their publications and um, their work and its impact. All of them seem very disillusioned with the system of education. And I was never a fan of education system. You know, mm -hmm. when I was studying in school, school simply makes you cram books or maybe it was just my schooling, even though by standards, you know, it was a very good schooling. And I remember fondly some of my teachers, but, you know, the general concept of education, it, it's, it doesn't give you joy. It doesn't give you pleasure. And, you know, it doesn't teach you to enjoy the learning itself instead of the grades um, and the career prospects. Um, if you are a little bit smarter, your family, your friends, your colleagues start looking towards you as you, know, you are a blank check at some point, you know, you're going to get cashed out of that. And that doesn't give you an intrinsic sense of pleasure and happiness. Um, and on 
higher education levels where you get to postdoc and doc and I teach a lot of students these days who are enrolled either in PhD or in their postdocs and working workshops and I can tell you know they they're not doing it for themselves it, it's it's for some kind of arbitrary prestige or hope to get to a professorship tenure position at some point but that's not making them happy do you have similar experience oh 100 percent. i found that um the way i thought as a kid i, I thought i was stupid I, di I didn't think education is bad i just thought i must be stupid because i'm not getting anything uh, i'm always sort of a distracted kid that a little bit you know head all over the place and so i i did poorly in school always uh, and when I look back, I realized that, I mean, the education system is, the traditional education system is, is terrible in, in so many ways. First of all, is the, is the one thing that never changes. Look at any industry, any industry evolves, right? You go to a hospital, it's not going to look like a hospital 100 years ago. It's, it's going to look, and if it did, we'd be scared. <laughs> Whereas educational institutions and universities, they, they're, they're, they try hard to look like, like 100 years ago and a thousand years ago, right? The methods are the same as, as, as all of modern history, right? Like there's a person standing up, talking to others, and the others are there passively receiving and learning. And I don't know you, but uh, I'm at my stupidest when I'm sitting down looking at the front. I'm not doing anything. I'm not interacting. I'm not reasoning. I'm just looking and absorbing and that may work for some people i think there's there's type of student that that can do that the one that concentrate but it's a very small sector of the population and for many others that doesn't do it and so we have a system of education that that doesn't do it for most people and most people just think they're stupid how many people have you heard the sentence oh i'm just really bad at math most people say that and i used to say it right but that that's not true right we're bad at the language that we're being taught and the language I'll, I'll say the example of mathematics but that works in with anything right we are given mathematics in one particular language which is formulas and we are expressing beautiful and simple concepts in a way that is illegible for most people right which is the same as if i take a song and instead of singing it to you I just show you the, the the sheet music and I go look at this beautiful song and if you've never seen sheet music you just you just think it's terrible or you just think it's there's nothing to it but if I sing it or if I play an instrument you'll appreciate it and that's what we do with mathematics and we're and with everything in in in, in science or, or anything we just we just code it in a in a language that is that only few people feel comfortable and we call those people smarter and we say those are the people that can do math but no everybody can everybody can do the concepts it's just not everybody can understand the language and i i was terrible for that language and that's why i thought it was bad at math it was it first in the math olympias and, and with some good mentors with good teachers that that actually made me think a little more that i started realizing that i was indeed good at math i was just i was just bad at abstraction right so that's one problem that's i think two two problems there with education and um and also in, in academia, there's there's a, a level of sort of prestige in not explaining well. Like if you think of a cartoon of a professor, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? Some 
some person explaining in a board, super complicated stuff, and then it just sounds like a genius because it's so genius that nobody can understand what they say. But it should be the opposite. The genius should be if you if everybody can understand you, right? If you can put things in a way that everybody understands. And uh, but but in you know that's not something that is so valued in academia. It's more like it's more the opposite. People try to sound whether consciously or unconsciously, they they try to sound illegible. Right? So that's that's another problem with education. And and other other problems with education that I that I can mention are well, it's it doesn't reach everybody, right? We have technology to bring education to most humans in the world, to many, many humans, and we still have a, a method that teaches it to very few. You have to be in the right location, you have to have money to pay for it, you have to be in the right age because you can't, you know, what if you're 60 and you decide to learn something new, but you know, there's it's hard to go to school, or if you're five. Like it's 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 very it puts a lot of restrictions on people, and that's why I think education needs to evolve. And this last year, though though terrible, it has forced us to really improve education, right? To really uh, use technology for for our good. And technology, there's all opinions that it's that it's good or bad. There's pros and cons for education, but one thing is that it. It helps us reach a lot more people, and if we do it properly, it may help us use the right amount of interactivity and personalization so that everybody gets their best way of learning. I think one of the reasons that whatever you say goes straight to my heart is you realize the missing thing when you see it because you are the one who are at the loss. So I had this failed attempt of... Um, studying physics for one year uh, back in university I was studying computational physics and i was reasonably good at uh, mathematics you know i totally aced that in um, high school but then i dropped out because and i now i realized that when i've learned a little bit about cognitive psychology and development in psychology how do you actually people learn you know they use scaffolding at the knowledgeable other and visualization the, of the information so one of the things that on your channel you do is that you follow a psychological principle um, which I wish, you know, my teachers had done that back then, or I and I would have made a reasonably good physicist, which is that um, I learned from top to down um, learning approach, which means that if you're teaching me differential equation, why don't you first tell me how is, what is the bigger picture of that? I mean, how Absolutely. is that applied in the word? What is the importance for that? You know, because it's very impersonal, you know, I look at this equation, and it starts giving me headaches. But if I, if someone can convince me that this is something that you would need in order to fix a larger human problem and you would make a contribution and then visualize that uh, one of the biggest um you know the positives of your video is that you visualize the information in such a fun and um an immersive engaging way that you know people who generally find physics very repel repulsive they would be very attracted to that and it's not only only the numbers um, that you would see on the first slide. So it's the it's the bigger picture. So I remember yeah. one of your videos. Let's talk about your YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. So I was just recently looking at one of your oldest videos, probably the first one, uh, or maybe the second one, the base theorem, in which you give an example of you know oh, yeah. if I was sick, you know I would just go to the hospital and then um, the doctor would take my test and would tell me, well, you have this disease, and then you would explain the probability of 
Um, what is the probability that that test really is saying what it's saying? How did you actually got to that approach? It, was it from your and I think I was 2016. Was it from your um, disillusionment from academia finally, or did you just think that you know now I am in a position to actually think of a bigger picture and explain it to everyone else? Um, I feel like it was due to my difficulty understanding throughout my whole life. I always noticed that I was slower than my peers, especially when I was studying mathematics. Like I, I would do okay, but my peers would get it quickly. Like we'd go to class and they'd be like taking notes and I'd be like, well, what was that? And they would be like, come on, it's easy. It's just this. And then, so I, I thought I was dumber, but then, um, I would, I would spend a lot of time trying to understand things in a simple way. Right. And so I would try to explain the thing to myself in a really small example. And then I'd be super proud. And I'd be telling people, Hey, look, look, this, this big theorem, I, I finally understood it in this little scenario where a person is walking and this has happens. And, and uh, they'd be like, okay, sure. But <laughs> uh, because they were much more abstract, right? They were, they could always get things. They, this is level of abstraction. I'm here and they were here. And so the things were taught here. And so they would catch them, work with them, do the home homework and, and then send it back and always here. And I was here. So I had to bring things down, download them from, from up there, explain them to myself. And then I could do the homework and then bring them back up. So it would take me a lot longer. Um, but I had to, I had to explain things to myself in a simple way. Otherwise I would not be able to do the, pro the problems, the, the homework, I would just not be able to get it. And, um, so it was, it was frustrating and it was a lot slower. And the same thing happened with research, with my peers who were doing research, they were always at this level. So they would learn a new thing and immediately they'd be able to get results from that, just from that definition. Whereas I had to bring it down, understand it in an example then I would be able to get results and then go write it back again in the top level, which is very, very hard. Yes, one of the question um, at this point is that since you, you think your peers were at the higher level of abstraction, but do you think they could also explain that in a way that you do? Because I have just hard. find exactly this is what yes. I found out. And just because you understand something, yes, you cannot you cannot automatically teach it to other people. And that's the story of university. I mean, you have yes. brilliant professors with publications and everything, Absolutely. and they just simply stand and stutter or insult people because they don't understand that. And this is not yeah. how it works. Absolutely. And I never connected those two. So my friends who were so much faster than me uh, and had better grades, uh, whenever it was time to give a talk, some classes required giving a talk, or sometimes you had to do TA work or teach a class. And they, it was very hard for them. The majority, some were good, but, and for me, that was easy. Like that was the easy part. I would just go explain it in the way that I understand it. And then everybody would understand. And so I always thought it was a trade-off, right? Like the gods made me stupid in math, but they, but they made me awesome at explaining and they did the opposite to all my friends. And I never connected that it was the exact same thing happening to both of us. Right. And so when I started, when I was teaching, when I was in academia and I, and I was teaching live classes and I, I really enjoyed that part, uh, or when I was making the YouTube videos or something, I just explaining the way I understand it. And I know that if I put a formula, that if there's a person who's like me, that person will not understand it. So I explain it to myself. That that stuff that I you see on YouTube, that's a picture of how I understand the stuff in my brain. So I I don't have to 
work for that because the work was done when I was trying to understand it in the first place. So it turned out there were 76,000 other people on your YouTube who didn't understand that. <laughs> I'm so glad for them. And I, and I, you know, empathize. <laughs> right out of your um, education, you went to Google um, mm -hmm. as a machine learning engineer, where you've been working on recommendation systems and other things. And I was just wondering, how did actually working at Google, understanding the bigger picture in industry in Silicon Valley, um, and both of us actually come from academics into the industry. And I was just wondering, were you able to translate some of your ideas uh, from academia into um, industry and then from industry to your YouTube channel? Were there any, to use yes. the neural network term, transfer learning? Transfer, oh my God, that's a great analogy. Yeah, stall transfer learning. Yeah, you know, in the same way that we talked at the beginning today and I told you that I had try to get the best of the Colombian culture and the Canadian culture and try to join it because they both have pros and cons. I feel the same thing about academia and industry, right? Academia, there are very stressful times, but there are wonderful things I learned there. And one thing I enjoyed was the, the purity, right? The fact that you do knowledge for the sake of knowledge, right? So I, I learned that and uh, to really take the time to understand it, right? I had great mentors there. My PhD advisor was somebody who just spent, you know, Put emphasis and understanding things well. I learned a lot from them and from other people. So I always had that. However, the problem with academia, at least math academia, is that the win, the, the metric for winning is can you prove the theorem? Right? If I can prove it, then I have a paper and I have a lot of papers, then I have status and I have jobs and I things. But to me, proving never did it. To me, to me, understanding was more important to me than, than proving not not maybe not to others and I respect that but but I could prove things and not yet understand them right as a formal as a formal proof and and I could also understand things that I wasn't able to prove uh, so when I switched from academia to industry that that sort of win changed from being able to prove to being able to implement and so all of a sudden, in, in the proofs, you care about 100% of the cases, 100%. And somebody sometimes you take very little time proving it for 99.9% .9 of the case, and there's a particular small part that you have to prove, and that's what's really hard. In industry, you don't care about that small piece. You care about, does it work for the bulk? In particular, at Google, like I was at YouTube recommendations. You know, if you do something that, that improves the metrics for a big chunk of the population, you're happy. As long as you can do it fast, right? Fast and reliable. So it went from proving to being fast. And so all of a sudden you switch your point of view and you go, okay, what uh, can I can I do this particular model? Well, I can, but is it fast? Because if it's not fast, it can be perfect. It's not gonna work, right? So my, my mind shifted. And then I had something interesting, which is that none of them would do it for me, right? Like proving doesn't do it for me. Doing it fast doesn't do it for me. What does it for me? And that's when I really had to do introspection. And I knew the answer all along, but I just had to put it in words. What really matters to me is understanding it in a basic way. Being able to tell a five-year-old kid how to do it, that is what does it to me. And when that when you when I discovered that, then I then I know that the rest of my career is gonna be spent explaining things. Mm -hmm. Just to clarify, were you working as a machine learning engineer creating pipelines or were you working as an ML researcher who would find a quicker way of 
um, dishing out recommendations um, through a faster algorithm? Both. Uh, my, co my, 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 my title was not researcher, it was a software engineer. So there were times that I spent writing pipelines, data, data pipelines, and there were times that I spent doing experiments. So say, uh, I wanna use this model instead of that one, or I wanna predict this this label, this this target instead of that other one and see if things increase. And you always care about increasing the metrics. The watch time was the metric that we had at that time. I don't know if that now it's a different one, but it's um increasing the number of watch time is the is the main thing. So that was the 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 target. But yeah, a lot of times I, I ran experiments on small sectors of the population feeding them a different things from a different model and analyzing the the difference did you have on job training um, because i don't presume that you already had that in your academics you know working with cloud and devops and um, deploying and monitoring the system resources is that something that you learn on the job or did you already know that i did not know that no i came in knowing very little. I knew enough programming to pass the Google interview, which is write methods and functions in Python. So the algorithms I, I was good at, but the coding, I didn't do that much. So it was very hard. I spent nights, you know, learning a bunch of things. And I, yeah, it was it's, it's in particular a, a big, big companies. They, the production code is very complicated. So I, it was, it was very hard. Why would they make you do that? Because even in a decent mid-sized company, they would have different departments for ML research and DevOps and project management and the data science. That's almost like worker abuse. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I think if I had known more about how industry works, I would immediately, my first day at Google, just talk to somebody and be like, how can I leverage my skills the best, right? I, I had, didn't have that, I, I didn't know that, and in my head, everything works like academia where you just survive. So I went in and I'm like, okay, the job that I was given a software engineer, I better survive at this. And uh, I started just working really hard and not, and not sort of making it noticeable that I had no idea what was going on. And, um, but yeah, that, that has taught me a lot that you have to channel your, your strengths. I mean, I, I certainly wasn't even close to channeling my strengths. I, I, I learned a lot and I'm thankful for that, but but yeah, I was I was in a uh, I, I was doing things that were so out of my comfort zone that that it was that it was difficult. Yeah, I think in one way it really helped you grow, but in the other way, I guess um, big companies leverage their name to get unprecedented amount of performance out of people who will simply do it out of the honor of working in Google and Microsoft. Um, which I guess um, every company kind of wants to um, leverage that. But let's talk about your transition from um, Google to something that you were born to do, Audacity. Um, mm -hmm. Tell me about your journey there. What did you do there? And then I guess when I look at Audacity and I read about that and I take the courses, I can totally see the spirit that you engender in Audacity. Um, so it's built around the vision that you have to give people the shortest possible path to the most important knowledge. It's kind of the 80-20 rule of learning um, that, you know, you focus on the most important 20% um, and, you know, 80% will take care of that. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. No, when when it was clear that uh, that I was not made for Google, that I was learning a lot, but it wasn't uh, that uh, productive. I, I started. I talked with my manager. I was very supportive, and she said, "Well, what is that thing that that you that you love doing? What what would you do if you had no if you had no salary? If, if all, sal all salary was the same?" And that's when I I thought, okay, that's when teaching started to come up. And when I realized that in Silicon Valley you could also do teaching. I thought I'm going to give this a try because I've, I've been in academia, I've been in industry. I'm going to try to merge the two. And Udacity is definitely that. MOOCs definitely merge the two. And I saw that it was a place that that I could contribute, that I was different than the rest, right? I, I Everybody has their own level of teaching and had their own way of teaching. And when I saw what they had there, I thought, okay, I really like this. Plus, I can inject my own my own way to do it. And and I came in and and certainly that was that was the case. I uh, I I had my angle, and and I started putting it. I remember in my interview I had to give a talk, and and the talk was to a bunch of people in the company who were both technical and non-technical, and so I thought, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna give the talk the way I do it. I explain neural networks in. I don't remember. It was the little bunnies and elephants that you had to split using the size of the ears or something like that, and. I gave it like that, and I thought, okay, if they like my cartoonish methods, then they will hire me, and that's good. And if they don't like them, then I better find out quick. They loved it, and I was, and when I came in, I really, I really started feeling like, like I was uh, a, a part of it. You know, uh, I, I was given a team of people who were who were great, and uh, there were there were animators, there were. People who there we had t t teaching assistants, uh, the whole, the 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 whole infrastructure was 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 there for me, and I just had the op was given the opportunity to unleash, and so I I unleashed all these sort of cartoons I had in my head and and put them into one place, uh, and we built a lot of stuff, and I also had a team of people uh, that I was I was leading that team. And they had slightly different ways to teach, and that was wonderful, because we would complement each other, and a lot more came out of that. So we we built. I was very proud of the job we did there. We we really built some some really fun courses, and I and I learned a lot more because I had to teach things that I didn't know, and I was given the the opportunity to sort of cartoonize it in my head. So it was a it was a great learning period. Do you think there's a child in you that tries to visualize um, all serious situations in a cartoonish one way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I always do that. Like when in every situation, I try to I try to explain it in a fun way. And, and so people close to me, they know that I will bring out the napkin and start drawing. And even things that are not math, right? Like when I understand other things, I always I always try to do it and, and explain things back to people sometimes when they already understand. So it's like, hey, stop it. <laughs> but but yeah, I always I always have that. And when I'm thinking to myself, I'm normally re-explaining myself some some random thing sometimes. Uh, but yeah, that's sort of very much my nature. Do you like anime, cartoon movies? Um, because I, for one, absolutely love movies like Frozen and Beowulf and uh, yeah. Lion King. Uh, what do you, what do you see when you see or you have time for movies or cartoons or anything at all? Yeah, I like cartoons. I like movies um, since since I was a kid. Um, I find that the narrative is amazing because I mean, think about it. We watch a movie, 
uh, and it's not a, a real scenario. It's not like we're learning history, right? We're we're just watching a a fake scenario someone invented in their head. Uh, somehow, you know, it'd be better use of our time to watch something that like facts, right? Because we learn. But somehow we put so much energy into watching something, and the reason is narrative, because we enjoy that. We read fiction books. We watch all kind of movies because we enjoy a story. Like if you tell me a piece of gossip and you tell me half of it, I won't sleep. I'll be like, hey, come on, you know, tell me the whole thing, right? Whereas if you tell me a bunch of facts and you stop in the middle, I'm like, okay, I just don't care about the rest, right? So narrative is very, very important. And I try to inject into everything I teach a narrative. I, I try to, even if it's a simple story, like you try to do this, but then you couldn't, and then you were saved by this algorithm or, or a story about people who are trying to do this particular thing with probabilities and then something. There's always a story with a beginning, a, a plot, a climax, and an ending. We are engineered to enjoy that. And and uh, I think education should should have that because it's it's just a way for us to, first of all, for fun, and second of all, to, to remember it, right? I remember I was at an interview once, and they asked me about, a hidden mark of model. And I was like, this is like what it is. Like, tell me the formulas. And I was like, okay, sure. And I have a video on that. So I said, imagine that your friend is happy or sad based on the weather. And then and then the interview was like, no, 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 just tell me the formulas. And I'm like, actually, I, I kind of have to tell you a story because I don't know the formulas. So I, I go, please, please bear with me. And I go, uh, then this one gets happy or sad because the sun comes out and then, and then the formula is this because the probability is this. And then I figure out the formulas based on the story, but I couldn't have possibly come up with the formulas if I hit a market model if I don't have that story in my mind. So it's an easy way to remember it. We, that's why to me narrative is just, it's just the way to, mm. it's kind of the way to, for us to learn. I think this is the embodiment of what we were talking earlier about the fact that um, when you learn top to down, you have a story and with the story, you have the numbers to go with that. And when you put them yeah. together, that's the only time that you actually remember the whole sequence. Other than that, you know, half you won't understand. And I think um, when I go to a lot of talks and people talking to me about how to get into data science, and I was just wondering, you know, if that is something that's for very few people who actually learn to know mathematics from the story and without yeah. one another, they cannot actually make the whole association. Um, you know, listening to you actually gives me a very strong nostalgia because I was that kid who would just take a book and go around to all my elders and ask them to uh, read the story for me. And I'll just take the book and go to another person and ask them to read the same story um, just to find out if you know there's a difference between how they narrate things. And then I used to work in radio um, as a child. So I'm very grown to ideas of stories and narratives and strong emotions because, and I learned that later in life that um, the best way of teaching is to associate a very good and happy memory with the learning. Absolutely. And that's the only way that you can, you know, place the everlasting impressions of that learning that people would never forget if you are to make a good teacher. And I was just wondering, out of that question, do you, do you believe in the fact that um, there is an association between um, physics and or, or any mathematical discipline um, and psychology? Because you seem to be someone who is very good at understanding other people's psychology and what it would be the best way that they would learn. And now we know um, through research that 70% of people 
um, generally are visual learners. So they have to have some kind of orientation or 3D um, abstraction of the concepts. Would you call yourself someone who is good at reading people also as well as formulas? Uh, I try my best. Uh, I certainly, there's, there's different kinds of people. And uh, as I said, you, you, you sort of, it's easy to empathize with the one that you are, right? And that's why, you know, very high performing academics, it's hard for them to empathize with people who are not big abstract people. And that's why we get sort of the, the, the great researcher who's terrible at, at teaching, uh, doesn't happen to everybody, but it's in the in the great majority, right? Uh, so so I find that I I empathize a lot with visual learners like me. Something that uh, we figured out at Udacity was with talking to people, looking at how students were, and looking at how we were, the teachers. Kind of found that there's three main three main types of learning, and this is there's no psychology research here, so I don't claim to um, to you know be the authority on teaching psychology, but we found out three types. There is the me, the visual learner, the one that has to draw with a crayon and a napkin and, a, and to a five-year-old, that's that's the mental picture person. Then there is the mathematical one, the one that has to look at the formulas and understand it. There's people like that. There's people who have to, have to work out the derivative and the board and have board for formulas to get it. Good for them, I'm not one of them, but I admire them. And then there's a third kind, which is the builder. Right, so it's sort of the visual, the the formulaic, if you will, and and the and the builder, that is the one that has to make it work. So that we had students and and teachers who would not be content until they build the model and make it work on a data set. And the moment you do that, even if you don't understand all the steps, the moment you do that, you're happy, right? So we had those three, and I had to challenge my way of teaching too because I I teach to the visual one. Like I'd be like, oh yeah, this and this and that. And many people were like please show me a formula or I will explode. And so I would have to sort of show the formula. And other people were like, you gave me a wonderful picture, but I wasn't able to use it in anything. And so I had to write code. And I learned to do the three way out of my comfort zone, right? Or we also had three you know, different teachers that would do, we'd sort of split the job to do that. But I, I definitely, um, I think one person cannot have the full picture of anything. And so we need different types of of people to to help us figure out the what is the best type of, of learner, mm -hmm. right? It's like different uh, frames of reference, right? I think <laughs> it's the um, ancient Greek um, lesson on rhetoric also that, you know, you have to have three components in your speech in order to be able to make a very lasting and convincing argument, which is the logos, ethos, and pathos. Um, and in some way, it relates to the fact that, you know, you have a story, you have numbers to go with that, and you have the passion to deliver it um, with confidence. Um, and that's something that you were actually able to engender in the culture at um, Udacity. Why Apple then? Yeah, um, th there was... Uh... Did you miss free food? Two things happened. Uh, actually, you don't get free food at Apple. <laughs> no, oh, no. Sad. So they, you pay. It's subsidized, but uh, yeah. But you know, I got great, uh, great things there. Uh, travel a lot. Um, I so Udacity was changing into a model that they have right now, where the teachers are external, and they were care more about the. Um, 
more about the uh, administration for the teacher, right? So you would get teachers to be experts, not, not in-house teaching, and you would just teach them to teach or sort of help them teach. And so that was started being my role. And then it became more of a, a manager role. Uh, and uh, that was that was fun, but I was um, trying to teach some more and, and things like that. So even I, I, I considered and may, may do it in the future being a, a sort of externally external teacher at Udacity. But it, it got to the point that that I was doing a lot more administrative things. Uh, it's great because I learned it, but it was kind of a way of my my comfort zone. And so I was thinking what to do. Uh, and then Apple showed up and said, we like your YouTube channel and we're looking for somebody who teaches the employees the same things in something called Apple University. And I thought, well, I've been, you know, I've been here for a while at Udacity. I, I sort of injected a, a, a style that, that it remains there. And, and so I thought I'll, I'll give this a try and see, and see what's up. My, my previous transitions have all taken me to, to fun places. And so I thought I'd, Let's let's give it a try. And so I was there uh, at Apple working at, I was a teacher, basically. Uh, I was teaching in-person workshops and also producing online material for for the employees. And uh, yeah, it was a great time. And also doing uh, internal consulting. So I would talk to teams and sort of tell them how to get their problem into machine learning and stuff like that. So it was, it was a great time. It was, it was a, a great transition. I mean, I had, I had an awesome time at Udacity, and, but I enjoyed the transition to Apple a lot. Do you think it was partly because of your repressed wish to become a professor that anything that had a last name called university, you'd simply join it? Maybe, yeah. Maybe maybe it was, it was that. Or I also wanted to test the big company culture again. You know, at, uh, at Google, I enjoyed the... I enjoyed the culture a lot. I was felt like I was playing catching up most of the time. So I wanted to maybe be at a big company and and not catch up. We just be like there and I know okay. it. <laughs> and how did you like to be on the other end of the spectrum where people were catching up to you? Yeah, it was it was great. I mean it was uh it was great too. I learned from people because the, the people that I taught were just had many times some of them had a lot more technical expertise because they were actual engineers. So they would have a better chance of going and writing it in, in, in production code. Others were, and this is something I loved, completely not into machine learning, just people from from all walks of life, and they would be in the same room. So I had to play a, a one-size-fits-all uh, approach. And uh, and really, that that was challenging and and fun. So I learned, I learned from people, I think, as much as they learned from me. And back to the in-person teaching was a lot of fun, something that I missed. I mean, as I said, I believe a lot in online teaching, but the fact that you can see the people you teach and see their eyes and see if they're falling asleep or, or, or awake or, or smiling when you say something and people smile, it's such a huge piece of data for you. Like it's just, you know, so I, I, I missed that from, from teaching in university and I, I had it again. So yeah, that was, that was fun. If you were to choose and you must choose between um, Apple and Google to work rest of your life. Um, why? W which one would you choose, and why? Ooh, that's that's hard. Uh, they both have great things. Uh, they they both have everything. Um, it's hard for me to compare, and I'm I'm sorry that I'm gonna 
ambiguous my way out of, <laughs> of it, but it's hard to compare because my job at Google was the most standard job. I was a, a sort of regular software engineer. I never got to see what the other places are, right? Um, I never got to see anything out of the standard. Whereas at Apple, I was, I had my own job for me only, and I would design it myself, basically. So if I was given, yeah, no, I mean, I, it's, I, I kind of have a very little basis of, of comparison uh, in there. Um, but I would, I would guess that, yeah, I think probably that the, the products at Apple were more hardware, more technical. Uh, I would have a hard time being an engineer there. At Google, I, there were a lot more sort of pure machine learning, pure like software, the products were quicker. So I think there were teams that, that I, I could be a more of an engineer there. So I think, I think the, the technical aspects would suit me more there. Uh, Apple's a lot more hardware, right? Uh, but put it but another yeah, way. Yeah, to put it another way, if there is no chance of failure, what would be your dream job that you would happily do the rest of your life? Oh, I think I've had it. I mean, I think uh, I think my dream job of, I think I like 50-50, right? I like uh, explore, exploit. 50% my comfort zone and 50% totally out of my comfort zone, learning new things. So a job where half of the time I do something like research or something like working on a product, uh, that that I'm that I'm slow at and that I can get you know learn a lot and get into things and learn from other people that do it faster that's perfect and then the other half would be my comfort zone which is teaching what I'm doing right mm -hmm. so it's explaining giving making workshops tutorials etc that's that's sort of my perfect job because I I challenge myself but I also get to to exploit what I do well one of the things that you do very good is to isolate the facts from the hype. Um, and I got this question a lot, um, which I should um, throw your way, which is what's the difference between artificial intelligence, machine learning and data science? Yeah, great question. Great question. And, and it's very common. There, there are many times used interchangeably and I, it's not, there's no harm in using it interchangeably. Artificial intelligence is the main one. It's when, Whenever a computer does anything by itself, you know, that, 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 that resembles a human. And machine learning is a part of it, which is when you do it based on data, then that's a standard answer and standard answers don't, don't do it for me. And, and, and so I think of how do we think as humans, right? Do we, the way we make decisions sort of in two ways, main, main ways. Uh, one is using sort of reasoning and logic, right? Like if if you teach me something and I and I just learn it, and or, or if or if um, or if I'm thinking, you know, trying to trying to rationalize things. But the other one is by experience, right? Like if I if I walk in a particular street ten times, and nine out of the ten times the same dog bites me, I I don't have any. I don't know anything about the street or, the, or about the dog or about anything. I just know the, th the things that happened to me, the experience. 
And when I make a decision based on that experience, that's machine learning. When I make a decision based on anything else, which is could be experience, but it could also be analyzing, uh, looking at probabilities, things like that, then then I'm um, then I'm using AI, right? And data science—that's a term that is encompassed that encompasses a lot of things. I would say that I would say that it's hard to tell between data science and machine learning. Um, if I would I would maybe say that's more technical. If you do machine learning, you, you may be a more technical person. You may be more into, and, and you write probably write more code. If you're a data scientist, you probably do more analyzing algorithms. Just because machine learning with the title machine learning engineer, whereas data scientist has the title scientist. So I would I would assume that uh, that that's the difference. Okay, now. Excuse me. Now it's about time that uh, we put the rubber to the road, and I'm going to ask you the question. Um, but interestingly, before I ask the questions, I actually have to tell you the rules to answer the, the that question okay, first. Now. Let's do it. And uh, it seems to be a very complicated questions for most people, but I assume not for you. But then um, to walk the talk, you have to explain it to people without okay. overcomplicating that. So no Shor's algorithm, no Grover's algorithm, no quantum entanglement or gating or teleportation. What's quantum physics? Ah, quantum physics. Okay, great. Uh, I actually, I'll, I'll tell you more quantum computing because I'm not that much expert in <laughs> quantum well, Anything physics. that uh, has a name quantum, just tell us that it's yeah. not supernatural. Yeah, so this is this is something that I'm learning right now. So I'm I'm in the I'm in the process of this is this is work in progress. So so, but this is kind of what I look at it a, a bit, right? Like a, a a classical bit in a computer is a is a one or a zero, right? It's like a switch that is on or off. So if I want to transmit information, I can only transfer one bit, which is one yes/no question, right? And a computer takes those bits and operates with them and changes them and 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 you if you're able to encode your problem, get the computer to to work with the bits and, and the solution comes out. That's a computer. A quantum computer then uses a qubit, which is more than a bit. So the first mental image I have of a qubit is a, a, a normal bit is an on and off switch, like the light switch. And a qubit is, you could think of it as a slider, right? Like the dimmer, like that you put on, on a higher or no light, or like on romantic in the middle, like dim light. And so all of a sudden, you can store a lot more information because you can store any number from 0 to 1. And that's a lot more than two things. That's infinitely many things. You have infinitely many states. Now, there's more because the state that is half turned on, half turned off can be, there's, there's, there's many different ways to look at it. The way it is, is a, it's an electron that is on spin up or spin down whatever that means, but you can have it on spin half, but in different ways. I can tell you, I can show you a bunch of different atoms that are in spin half that are not, that are different. It's our qubits uh, that are in, that are different. And uh, so imagine that there were two, one spin up and this, there's, this is spin up, this is spin down, and there's a half half, but there's also this half half. So all of a sudden I have a circle, right? 
there's the full spin up, the full spin down, and every other one has two possibilities. So my dimmer is more of a circle dimmer, right? Now there's even more because I can also point in every direction. So it's actually a sphere. So the way I imagine a qubit is a sphere. Imagine if your light switch was a sphere and you can put it on full up, full on, full off, but also in the middle or in 70, 30 or in, or in 10, 90. Uh, and, and you have an entire spheres and circles possibilities for that one. So that's a qubit, right? Now, you that seems like cheating because I can store any kind of information like that. I have infinitely many possibilities for my qubit. So if I want to store the entire Wikipedia, I just put it on a long, long, long number between zero and one, and I put the qubit for that number. So what's the catch? I can't go from two pieces of information to infinite. And the catch is that the information is there, but the moment you observe it, it collapses, right? And so your switch is in half on, half off. But the moment you look at it, it goes either decides, make up its mind, either it goes full on or full off. And you never knew. You'll never do know. You, do you like Sch Schrodinger's cat metaphor for that? I think it's interesting. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's weird. It's a weird metaphor, but it's it's that right. Like the cat is in a in a superposition of alive and death, and it's not like it's it's very different to say that you are that you don't know what it is that to be in a superposition. If I, if I have a cat and I know it's alive or dead, but I don't tell you, for you, the cat is in a it's half possibility, half probability to be alive and half probability to be dead. But to be in an actual superposition of both at the same time, it's different. The math is different, right? And so what is, what is quantum computing, right? Like you want to use all this information. And so what you do is manipulate qubits in the same way that you manipulate a bit by doing a not operator, an and operator, an or operator. You can manipulate qubits and when you if you do it in a, in, in, a, in a smart way, the moment you observe, you'll get an answer to your question. So you have to, you don't get everything for free, but you do get some perks and you can use these perks to, to solve problems in a much harder problems. And then there's entanglement, which is a completely different uh, mind-blowing thing. To right? quote uh, Richard Feynman, um, and he, he said, you know, that, I can safely say that no one understands in computational, I'm sorry, quantum physics, which I guess um, by proxy includes quantum information, mathematics, yeah. computing, anything. Um, I'm just wondering, the way you explain it, my grandmother can understand that, but why was Einstein so against that? He was against what? Ex explaining? The, the basic premise of quantum physics, because he didn't actually believe that, you know, it's something that, because to put it in your words, it seems like it's cheating, which frankly is for a lot of people. I mean, yeah. what does it even mean between zero to one? I mean, you can shove whole world and universe between zero and one if you wanted to. Yeah, exactly. And in physics, unless you have measured and found the superposition, you didn't do a breakthrough research, did you? Yeah, I mean, I think... Yeah, yeah, it's like, I think I, to answer your first question, Einstein was against it because 
it was very weird to him that there was randomness, right? Like the the sort of scientific way to look at things is if I if I were to replicate an experiment to the atom, everything the same, I will get the same results. If I am put into the same universe and replicate an experiment, I get the same thing. But quantum measurement says no, it's it's random. You get a you get a yes or you get a no and you could run the exact same experiment and get an and get a different answer. So to him I think that was weird and that's why he said God does not play dice with the universe. Right? And I I, I think he was questioning this until later in his life and I I don't know what his last idea was, but he definitely uh, questioned this and many other physicists do. And I don't think, I agree with Feynman that nobody fully understands quantum physics. Now that I've been able to talk to experts, they they look at it a lot. I think you lot. should cut him some slack. It was like, what, 40 years ago or even more oh, than that? <laughs> no, he's genius. I don't uh, question. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, certainly... I'm not criticizing, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that's fine. I so we have a question here. If you can oh, actually yes, take yes. it um, while we talk about that. Um, sure. And what I know f from the research so far, um, quantum computing is something that has recently appeared into the latest trends in Gardner report in 2021 for leaders. Uh, it seems to have a realization timeline of four to five years. Um, but the most uh, disputable in my little research and the papers that I've read and the books that I've read. The interesting question is that what are the practical applications of quantum computing as we speak? And you do a lot of work um, at Zapata Computing about that, and we're going to be talking about that. But what are some of the practical applications as of now that we can do that? I only know that so far com quantum computing is is an aid to existing machine learning pipeline. Um, if you yeah. could expand on that. Yeah, I would say, hard to say practical applications, uh, more like potential. Th there are some some wins that one can see, uh, some, uh, but I would imagine like how the, you know, the state of an airplane when the Wright brothers were, were building it, they, it was no practical application because you would, whatever you would do it, you go faster in a, by walking <laughs> or a bicycle, but, there was a potential, right? So you say, okay, practical application is maybe one day I'll be able to cross, cross the Atlantic in one of these uh, uh, weak planes, right? Uh, so that's where we are in quantum computing, maybe a little ahead, but but there have been problems of the, the quantum supremacy has been achieved in a very special problem that was built for quantum supremacy, right? Uh, but I don't think we're that far from being able to start getting applications that are practical. Uh, right now, a lot of them are theoretical. A lot of them are, whenever we have a quantum computer this big, we'll be able to such and such and such and such. And those are mm. absolutely fascinating. I mean, the things you can do uh, just from being able to do search, linear search in a faster than linear time, to me is fascinating, right? Like if you have, I'm looking for something in a hundred slots and I don't have to do order of a hundred but I have to do order of square root of 100. To me, that's that's fascinating, right? Shor's algorithm, right? Like uh, being able to factor big numbers, it's gonna completely break cryptography. Um, just basically anything. But if you don't mind, just for a minute, you asked me about the aid, right? Like mm -hmm. it is it is definitely an aid, right? Uh, the, the quantum computer 
we're not going to have pure quantum computers, right? In the same way that we don't have pure airplanes that are always hovering in the air, right? They they behave like a car most of the time, and they only use the wings when they need to. Computers will be like that. It'll be most of the time a classical computer. You enter your data as a classical computer. You process it as a classical computer. At some point, you turn it into quantum, into qubits, and do some calculation that's really hard for a classical computer. And then you bring it back and analyze the results with a classical computer. So it's mostly classical, and the quantum is there to help you with a bottleneck. Um, very interesting. One of the papers that I read um, that you published um, at Zapata Research, um, and I see a lot of their videos, and I was just wondering if you were the one who instilled that culture. There was this video about squeezing the juice out of research on oh, yeah, uh, YouTube channel. It's a super fun I, video. I, yeah, and it's that's super nice. Yeah. Did you have anything to do with I that? Wish, no, I didn't have anything to do. I think that was uh, Peter and... Uh, uh, the other people from Zapata who are really, they, they really uh, care about that. I mean, there's at Zapata, there's a culture mm. of trying to make yeah, this. They must actually, if they want people to get interested in that, because otherwise, you know, it's it's a proverbial old physics professor standing in front of a whiteboard. Yeah, but anyways, right. what I wanted to talk about is that uh, one of the papers that I read, um, and that's a very fascinating concept for me, specifically in classification problem, uh, the edge where quantum computing can deliver a little bit more is that right before when you have uh, data input data and it's about to make classification there's a prior and in prior where the classical um, machine learning pipeline ends and the quantum computing uh, has been handed off the task of finally classifying between zero and one it clusters because the basic premise is that everything is between zero to one the the premise I'm, I'm not able to actually explain the whole paper because it's a lot complicated but you know it does a better job than classifying than the classifying in turn in comparison with the classical um, algorithms do you think what are some of the fields where compute, quantum computing performance or accuracy surpasses classical algorithms by far uh that that we have Right now, there's nothing by far other than the the very ex examples that you cook up for for um, for quantum supremacy. But you are definitely hitting the nail in the head in that uh, the prior is something that is uh, that it's it's very uh, that 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 quantum computers have a lot of potential in in working with, right? So, for example, generative models are something that we're very interested in for many reasons. Uh, yeah, I think it's, yeah. it's the paper that you guys published where it recreated the um, CIFAR uh, handwritten um, numbers exactly um, the way it was um, in the training data sets and yeah. quantum computers were able to do that. It was unbelievable the kind of accuracy that they had. Yeah, that was a great paper by some of my teammates, Manuel Alejandro and others. Uh, they, they did a wonderful uh, job because what what happens is this, you're generating, let's forget about classification for a moment. Classification is sort of done well in classical computers. So a, a problem to pick is a hard one, right? Generation is hard for classical computers. So what the question is, where can you put in a little quantum part into a generative model to be able to, to improve not just speed, but also uh, performance, right? And so what do generative models do? They take, for example, images and they encode them into like a much smaller space, the latent space or the prior, right, that you mentioned. And then they take points out of the prior and blow them back up 
into images. And I'm saying images, but I meant any kind of data that you wanted to generate. And so a face, for example, you have a data set of faces. It, it encodes it into a much smaller space because a, a face has many, there's, if, if you take a pixel for every, you know, if every, if, a, if every dimension that you have in an image is a pixel, your space is humongous and the points are all over the place. You manage to crunch that with a generator or outer encoder or whatever it is into a much smaller space where if you, you hope that, let's say you put all the faces into a little cube. If I pick a random point out of this cube and bring it back up, I get a new face that I hadn't seen before, right? So that's, that's generation. Now here is something interesting. If I manage to take the whole space of faces and bring it down into a small square or a small skew or a small dimensional space, who tells me that the distribution of faces inside that little square is uniform? I have no guarantee that if I pick a random point, it's going to be a face. It could easily be that I bring them all into a square and all of them are here and some of them are here, but there's nothing in other sites. Right, so thinking that a generative model has to, that a prior is uniform or for that matter, even Gaussian or anything, it's, 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 it's not, I'm not gonna go as far as saying it's naive, but it's- Sorry to interrupting right? you, but isn't what discriminator is for? Absolutely, but searching inside that space is not something you do in generative models. You just pick a random point out of there. But what if some points are better than others, right? Mm. So what if there is another distribution inside that space where you can pick more likely, you're more likely to pick a face. And so two things happen. One, the space is small enough for a functioning quantum computer. And two, there's a, a niche, there's a potential for improving because uh, you can model a distribution using a quantum computer. Now, what is so special about modeling distributions? We can model distributions classically, right? We have our restricted Boltzmann machines. We have a bunch of algorithms that if you feed it a bunch of data, it starts generating similar data. Why a quantum computer? Well, many reasons, but one is that generation is immediate for a quantum computer because it's observation, right? If I have a quantum circuit, I can generate things immediately. I just say, put in some qubits in state zero and what comes out, observe it and you get something. And if you do it again and observe it, you get something different. And if you do it again and observe it, you get something different, fully random from that distribution. On the other hand, classical models may be hard. If you have a restricted Boltzmann machine, it can wonderfully uh, model your distribution, but picking out of it is hard. It's sometimes intractable. You have to do some some small uh, algorithms like uh, um, that, 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 sort of pick a pseudo random uh, point out of there. But if you want to pick a fully random point, you need a lot of computing power. So so generating comes easy for quantum computers, right? Well, let's and put that in perspective. Um, you know, pit these two computing models against each other. So one, um, I, I recently actually published, um, and along with the video, the use um, StyleGAN tube, which was originally published by um, Shabakin's research. Um, and then they have a huge data set or a quarter million pictures at NVIDIA. And um, they created a generative model from that, which could be used for transfer learning. Um, 
if we take this model, and now, by the way, they have a second version of that also called StyleGAN2. So if you use that, and then we also use the quantum computing model for the same training data set, what are the improvements that quantum um, algorithms would make in comparison with the classical ones in terms of both the accuracy, the computation power, the time, um, the um, precision, uh, I mean, this paper that they've written, they haven't actually addressed the theoretical side of uh, supermassive quantum algorithms. If you can shed some light on that. Yeah, uh, there's two ways that you can evaluate a generative model. One of them is how how the quality, the quality of the, I'm going to say images, but the quality of the data, how much does your data point look like a data point from the original set? How, how, how perfect the face is? And uh, the other one is diversity, right? Like how much are you exploring the entire space? Am I, am I drawing a very similar face for every time? Or am I capturing different genders, different races, different everything, right? Different positions, different expressions. And so you can get them both together with something called inception score. And so, but it's hard to tell how much of each one you have, right? So in, in experiments with uh, MNIST data set in this recent paper that was published by, by the, the folks in my team, they, there are um, improvements in the inception score. And so there are studies of like how much, you know, how much did you improve quality? How much you improve this? But these are the, the first steps to be made. Uh, first of all, to get more, more, more uh, results in that direction and harder data sets on, uh, you know, um, more, more, uh, higher scores, and also to understand what what is it. I mean, I think there's a belief that there are, there just may be things that that a quantum computer might might be able to model that a classical hasn't, right? Mm -hmm. There may be that those distributions. Yeah, I guess there's an obvious sign of, um, you know, you can put your trust in that based on the um, handwritten digit paper. Uh, the result was very obvious that, that the highest um, classical algorithm couldn't actually produce the kind of results mm -hmm. that um, quantum algorithm did. But let's talk about um, a place where you guys are working um, tirelessly on that, Zapata computing. Um, I'm very inspired by the kind of research that they're producing there um, and the effort and the um, the dedication you're putting in that. I've um, had a little bit of conversation with Christopher Savoie, who's um, yeah. your uh, founder. And uh, But before I had that, how is that to actually work with someone like um, Alan Espura Gusek? The guy has produced 553 research papers. It's, yeah, it's I hope he's not listening, but that's insane. Yeah, I don't know how he does it. Uh, yeah, I, I don't work. I've met him and I've talked to him and he's a wonderful human being. He's actually one of the ones that you can, if he doesn't tell you it's a quantum physics, it's, 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 a, it's a, this kind of researcher. He sounds like, it's like a normal person that you would have a normal conversation with, right? Like he explains things in a, in a simple yeah, way. Well, and some I, I of his videos, that. and it was very natural that the way he actually explained those compli complicated concepts. And I could see, you know, an older version of you, uh, in, him also. Um, and I was just wondering that how's that um, working with him who's at, at the cusp of um, quantum computing? So he's the kind of person, if he told me about a concept in quantum computing, generally I'm very skeptic about everything unless I've read something. But if he told me something, I said, just forget the papers, you know, he's probably right. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. I mean, I I I don't uh, have he's he's uh, into his research group and uh, in, at the university, and and so we see him. I talk to him sometimes, but the real influence that he has on me is through his students and postdocs, right? Because I work daily with his his former students. My manager is one of his former students, and his his postdocs and everything, and he has injected that sort of uh, way of thinking into them. So I, I talk to them a lot and yeah, the, the definitely it's um, a sort of global perspective. Like I don't think, I don't think he, and when I say he, I mean him and his group, I don't think they see barriers, right? Which is something that tends to be a big mistake if an academic does it, they, they, they see, they look at the quantum, uh, they look at the chemical aspects of, of, quant of quantum computing. They look at the physical aspects of the computational aspects of the, machine learning aspect, the mathematical aspects that they all sort of work together and they don't, it's never a matter of like, oh no, this is, this is your thing. And this is my thing. It's always trying to understand all of them at the same time, right? For the material side, from the, all of it. And so I've learned a bit of that and I've been, I've been learning, I'm still in the learning process. So there, there may be questions you ask me that I'm like, wow, I don't know. Idea. But, uh, but I definitely appreciate that there's no barriers, that mm. that all of it is seen as a one discipline, even and not and not spawning several different disciplines. Mm. I assume that it would be a very enriching learning experience because he himself comes from a chemistry background and yeah. seeing a lot of uh, interdisciplinary top researchers working together. That must have been a very um, um, amazing place to be. I would love to have him on show if you could actually yeah. make the time. But um, one of the things that I wanted to ask you is that um, you have a product called Orchestra at Zapata Computing. Yep. Yep. And uh, the concept itself is wonderful because a lot of companies are now investing um, in huge wins in the future and near term devices. It's Microsoft has its own version of content computing and then IBM has this kiss kit. Um, and a lot of other companies um, and individuals in, in, in Chinese um, government and research, they're doing a lot of work on that. Um, and it's kind of uh, the matter of time who gets there first. Um, and I was just wondering, Orchestra provides a workflow platform uh, for all these um, developments so that we have some kind of uh, uniform experience and we're able to integrate all these efforts so you can you know specify your backend and your ansatz and um, other specifications tell us a little bit about um, orchestra state of maturation um, do you work with that directly or yeah yeah i do i, I use it um and uh write some algorithms on it and it's 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 wonderful because it is kind of putting it all together right if you are a, a company or a research group and and you have some code written here, some code written there, and you pass it to a friend and, and and a notebook and they try it again, but they don't have the packages or they some some code is written in certain language and some in another. Uh, so and also for putting it in production, anything like that, reproducing experiments. Uh, it's 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 basically it's very useful for and also for using different quantum computers, right? Like you can use the one in Honeywell, the one in Rigetti, IBM, Google, everything using the same pipeline so all you do is you put the right specifications right and you put you make workflows of code where the output of here goes to here and etc so it really it, it it really makes it easy for anybody who wants to 
use quantum computers with all their power mm. right and and it's uh sort of language agnostic you can have if you write if you write on penny lane and your friend writes in kiss kid you can still you know both put it together uh, all all of that so it it's uh, absolutely fascinating. Even for, and for classical computing, it's also it's also useful because you can just not not send it to a quantum computer, and you have all of a sudden a, a workflow for for classical computers, right? I'm really looking forward to actually receive the credential. I've already applied for that and and see Wonderful. and play with that how it works. Um, let's go to a more uh, metaphysical question here. Um, so now that we know that. Back in the times, we already knew about the atoms and molecules and things like this, but quantum computing actually got get us to the subatomic particle level, where there, if you know position of one particle, so you know the like you were explaining the metaphor of uh, the up and down direction. So if you know the position of the up uh, spin, you already know where the down spin would be on the other end of the universe and spectrum. So I was just wondering, a lot of those things were voodoo and uh, science fiction, um, like a lot of things are now. I mean, 100 years ago, people would call airplane some kind of hearsay. Um, I was just wondering, would that explain God and angels and ghosts? Are, are, would you call yourself a religious person? That's interesting. I'm a spiritual person, for sure. Uh, it's a very important part of my life. And so I try to understand everything that way, too. And yeah, quantum computing certainly puts things together. This is something that I've I once learned, and and I've it has decided my life, which is that with your mind you create, right? We're not passive. We're not passive in this world and just observing, but we create with our mind. So I, you know, if you want something. If you think about it and, and and visualize it in your head, you can you can make it real, right? And that's something that just you know it's it's inspirational and it's 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 a nice way to live life, thinking that you are with in an active role where you where you create, uh, and to see that that in in small particles that is the case because when you observe them, you 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 make that decision, right? You change the universe by observing it you're not just passively looking so to me those two things tying together beautifully right the fact that your mind is so powerful that it can create everything and actually in, in, i love that in, in, in spanish the word for believe and the word for create are the same in one tense right Cre creer, crea y crea, right and uh, and so you that that to me ties in ties in together, and I wasn't expecting it. Uh, but two ideas that that are very that I think very strongly, right? I've always tried, um, and I haven't talked to anyone about this concept that I had because I have this propensity of um, thinking very deeply about human psychological systems and collective destiny of human beings, and then use machine learning and some kind of engineering or sine cost, um, tan edge or sigmoid function to kind of measure the, the, the social aspect of how human beings think. And I was just wondering, do you think that the, our world, our universe itself is, is a closed system like we have in, um, physics. Um, so there's, um, certain amount of energy there if there if it's totally isolated system nothing's coming in and nothing's going out um so what happens within this system uh, it's a closed system so 
So if you move, move um, atoms on the right side, so there would be atoms on the left side would be compressed and then they would go under it or somewhere and, you know, take this position. So it's everything is interconnected. Do you think human um, ethics in terms of karma is also real? So what we do in the world, everything has its impact. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great, that's a great analogy. I mean, that, that in science, every cause has an effect and also in our, in our lives, in what we do, right? Everything that, that we do has a cause and effect. So I definitely believe in karma and that we more than as a punishment is, I, I see it as a learning process, right? Like if you did something negative, you, you must learn the, to, a, and and use it as a growth opportunity. So I, I I do I do believe that that also has a there's also cause and effect there. I think I have a question here also, which is very relative to what I was thinking. I was listening to a talk between um, Lex Friedman and uh, Francois Collet, which is the founder of Keras, and um, I think uh, Francois Collet is known for his uh, work. Uh, for Keras, um, but I, what I find more interesting about his work is his Kaggle competition on ARC, which is the, which is, and his paper also on intelligence, where he wants to truly create a system, an artificial intelligence system that would teach itself in situations which it's not programmed for. So it, it truly is intelligent, and I think this question relates a lot to um, what I've been thinking for quite some time is that will we actually truly be able to create systems that are that are good for situations that they're not trained for? Like there is, to put it in more machine learning terms, there, there is no training data set. It collects the information on the go. It learns just like human beings do. So we're talking about if I go on this street and, you know, nine out of 10, this dog always bites me. So, you know, you don't have to, you know, be thinking like a neural network to, you know, paint the picture I and mean, you don't want to get bitten, find another road. So is, is that something that machines will be able to learn also? Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of room for improvement, uh, th that there's things that machines do great, but there's things that, that humans still do so much better, right? Like we learn from one data point. Like if I tell you what a, a new thing is, you know it already. Right. And there's the fact that we can do different things right like a machine learning system can do one thing but then we have to build another one for another thing so it's like transfer learning right that's my knowledge about types of fruits help me with something different uh, walking in the street or something like this very this is something that needs to be explored and a lot more right and i think you mentioned something like uh i guess in the style of meta learner right which is can can machine learnings can machine learning models sort of train other models? Can they can they build like we build them with a purpose? But can I build one with a purpose of of building machine learning models? And I think I think we're going in that direction. And I think this is I can't predict the future, but I think this is definitely uh, some something that will will happen. There's one other person who's very similar to you. Um, and he's a very good friend of mine, and you know, I always love to talk to him. Um, he was on my show a couple of weeks ago, Josh Darmer, and he also oh, has a YouTube channel. Yeah, I'm a fan of, I'm Absolutely a fan fantastic of guy, you yeah, know, wonderful person to talk to. And I was talking to him about self-driving cars, and he has had the um, 
you know, test drive in uh, Tesla Model 3. And he absolutely loved it. Uh, but he wasn't too sure that he was going to be the first person to be sitting in a driverless car. Uh, where do you stand on that? I am a big fan. I mean, I think uh, you can use machine learning to to save lives by reducing accidents and by uh, really like uh, to save ourselves a lot of time and a lot of resources. I, I think it's uh, I think it's wonderful. Uh, but obviously, there's there's some. It's a problem. Most machine learning models, all of them, make some mistakes, right? So what's what's a small rate of mistakes and 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 most of the for training a self-driving car most scenarios that car knows exactly what to do in most roads they can get you know let's say you get 99 percent uh accuracy that's that's wonderful but well it's not because if you're making a mistake every hundred like you it's a lot of accidents and it's a lot of hard people that are harmed or dead right so how do you make it better and that that one percent is much harder and out of that one percent 99% of that 1% is still it's still easy but is that little tiny one and the question is when are you content and not only that if you compare like we hear every time a tesla has an accident or we we hear about it on all the news right but when do we hear about when humans have an accident right that happens a lot every more day. so we need to yeah it's also a challenge on us to be comfortable with the unknown like would i go in a driverless car the whose accident rate is this or would i go in a car with a driver whose accident rate is this well i i know this one you know like i but i don't know this one this could go very wrong so we need to be more comfortable with machine learning models and that's something that is only gained with with time i think because even myself like i, I i'm a little like i i would I, I would love to, you know, I, I've been the chance to be in self-driving cars and it's it's wonderful, but there's always that level of, am I ready to to leave it? Uh, I think I think both. They will get better and better and better and, and one day they will perform better than humans and humans will get better and better at being confident and then one day will be like like natural, you know, like we like we are with airplanes. We, we used to not, we, people used to be very scared and now they're, the majority are more comfortable. So I, I think it's definitely a, I'm a big fan of self-driving cars. I think Elon Musk has a point here where when he talks about the numbers, but if you have a data-driven approach to things, uh, the math is very clear. So you have a better chance of surviving um, an accident, or let's put it that way, you are more safe in a driverless car as it's com in comparison to driving yourself, um, or at least that's what the numbers show us. Do you think that has more to do with human psychology? Because we know from the fact that, you know, human beings are, are more worried about negative consequences than they are happy about the positive consequences. Yeah. And do you think it's the people would rather die driving cars by themselves than dying <laughs> in an accident that's done by a self-driving car. Yeah, it's kind I of mean, a limbic system takes over. Yeah, negative consequences are always uh, the ones that create news. So you don't get to hear, if you hear numbers of like, oh, the rate of accidents decreased by this much doesn't mean anything. But if you see the result of an accident, it's, it's, it goes inside you, right? And I think for, for things that, you know, for the majority of cases, the driverless car will do better than a human, but there may be that one case that the driverless car has never seen before, 
and it would be easy for a human and the driverless car just does something embarrassing and then that's what people are scared of right what what would happen and so that's why what your previous question we need to train models that can handle things that they've never seen that's very hard but but yeah i mean i think um i think the big fear would be to to have the car do something that that a human could easily do and the car mess it up uh in the same way that image recognition right like it tends to work even better than humans but there's that one particular thing that totally fools it like a you know a muffin with three blueberries and it goes that's a dog and the human would be like no it's not but i think that's what people are are scared rightfully of because it's it's a little embarrassing right it, it would be a bad way to to to, to have an accident right but you know, I'm hopeful that 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 will get over it. Mm -hmm. Well, people like us who work in uh, blue chip companies, you work in Google and Apple. Uh, there's a lot of concern regarding privacy and um, how AI ethics is evolving. So we have this um, recent firing of Tim Gebru, um, yeah. oh. who was at Google, and then um, Facebook came up with this uh, ridiculous WhatsApp privacy policy where they could tell mm -hmm. anyone's data to anyone. So there are huge concerns every day. We um, hear about when it comes to big companies. And uh, I'm not sure people have a lot of confidence anymore in these big, big companies. And with technology playing a part in our lives, which is almost inevitable now, do you see any concerns for morality, privacy, and ethics in this domain? Yes. And what what are your biggest concerns? Of course, I think humans are the biggest concern. I think we can, as in the same way that you mentioned at the beginning of the interview, we have a, a good part and a bad part, right? And and if you give people power, it can be anything, right? You can, with uh, gunpowder, you can do wonderful things, but you can do horrible things, right? With fire, you can do both wonderful things and terrible things. And I think uh, data is is not and technology is not is not an exception. You can use it for good, but you can use also use it for for evil. And I think we, I think there needs to be two things: education and accountability. And right now we don't have any of those. Uh, nobody teaches us what the people teach us, sort of how to do things, but not what things should be done or not. Right. So there's a lot of emphasis on the coding and the models, but there's not nothing on on ethics, right? On what you should do, what you should not do. Uh, and it's very easy for, for people to make a mistake there. And another one is accountability. I mean, there needs to be laws that prevent this. There needs to be punishment when this is done, not, not just a slap on the wrist, right? And big companies just tend to not face consequences. They're, they're, and this is in tech and not in tech. I mean, when a Companies sometimes even factor in the consequences into their model and they say, okay, well, the probability that I get caught is this and the fine is this, so expected values of what I spend is still better if I if I break the law than if I don't. That needs to stop happening, right? We need to have accountability for both for companies and and for the models too, right? Uh, have you seen that there are there are models to rate teachers, for example. There are models that are used to to fire a teacher in a public school or to give them a bonus based I think on I, I, I don't know if you're familiar with that. And I, I think that was one of the most eye-opening talk for me um, by Dr. Cynthia Rudy, where she compares the Project Compass, where 
um, black prisoners were more likely to be denied the parole um, in the prison system. And that's horrible because they've been already long enough in jail system and they've had it bad throughout the history of um, U.S. And on top of that, there is a system that systematically um, discriminates against them. It's a huge reason to to be concerned about. That is huge because our data is biased and our models are not accountable. So the the model, for example, that that helps fire that that decides if a, fi- a teacher gets fired. Nobody knows how it works. Like people don't know exactly what what the weights are, what what it is. It's it's hidden behind a black box. So you have a model can have accountability on someone's career, but there's no accountability on the model. Nobody can come in and analyze it. So that's that's terrible. And the data that we have is is tremendously biased. I mean, we we've, we've been racists and sexist and and a lot of other things for centuries and now we're training models with that data so of course the models are going to be racist and sexist and xenophobic in every possible way and another problem even beyond that is that we feed the data back right and then make decisions based on that and then train the model again so there's a feedback loop so it's a compounded nonsense yeah so what happens that the model doesn't know the model thinks, okay, if you're doing a, a model for, for the police, for crime, for detecting crime, then it goes, okay, where where have I put more people in jail? Oh, in the poor neighborhood. So let's send more police there. And then they find more petty crime there, like drug possession or something. And then they, the model goes, fantastic. I did wonderful because I predicted that there's going to be more crime there. I sent police there and there indeed was more crime there. Well, I ask you, what happens if you send police to the richest neighborhood? Oh, you're going to find drugs or you're going to find uh, domestic abuse. You're going to find a lot of things, right? So that you cannot, you, you, you could be very, very, very careful with feedback loops that just confirm the same biases that have existed and make them worse. And then, you know, pat yourself in the back with, with, with amazing metrics that mean absolutely nothing. So there has to be, as I said, education and accountability. For, for everything, for people, for models, for companies, and for data. I think there are very positive applications um, of the same also. I was talking to um, Hogan about emotional psychology. He's an expert on that, um, and he does a lot of work in how human expressions and um, the data from their behaviors can actually help identify the most discriminated or isolated people also. For example, in Norway, what they're trying to do at the moment is that they're working um, on an algorithm which identifies the neighborhoods which has the lowest um, socioeconomic status indicators um, and especially the immigrant population to identify people who are more likely to actually get into the crime because one of the reasons to get into petty crimes um, is poverty and of, of course, course the isolation and discrimination. Mm-hmm. So if you could identify these uh, neighborhoods and people, we're more likely to help them in a better way in terms of education programs and um, scholarships um, and other opportunities that would fit them into the mainstream. And I was just wondering, is this the ambivalence or the gray area in which large, huge companies actually um, play with? So, you know, you could play a foul play also, but then again, you can call this the the opportunity of helping the poor and the destitute and then still get away with that. Do you think that when you're large enough and you're rich enough, you get away with all kinds of discrimination yeah, absolutely absolutely just the way the rules are made i mean uh 
if if a poor person robs a bank, with not, I'm not saying it's a good thing, but there's an entire police force for for that, right? But if a rich person doesn't pay their employees well or makes wage theft and stuff, there's not a police th- force for that, right? That's that's permitted. That's completely allowed. And and uh, who will be able to fight against that if the poor people don't can afford a lawyer, right? So there's a, a rigged, tremendously rigged system that that operates. And, uh, you know, we'd be, we should not perpetuate it. Don't you think there is an inherent bias in people that help them? And then that's one of the theories in social psychology. Also, there's also an in-group and out-group. And no matter what happens, how heinous the crimes from the in-group are committed, they're always right. So think of it in some term, some sort of nationalism or it could be religious messianism or it could be patriotism or anything that would help you protect the criminals no matter how wrong they are so we you just come out of a um, horrible four-year presidency of trump um i don't know if you were in the u.s at the time or not um and i think and that's a very so for someone who's um, lived in germany for quite some time i speak fluent german and i've studied a lot of history and i've lived in berlin for some time isn't it like a sad moment in history where we are still celebrating the fall of a wall where there's another guy who talks about building a wall. wall. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think from Germany, I admire that they they study their history carefully and try not to make the same mistakes. Right. Other places tend to erase the history or, or sort of beautify it. Right. Saying, Oh yeah, the, 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 the settlers came and the Indians, decided to move to give them some space and they were friends and traded back. No, there was a genocide, right? There's a horrible genocide a few hundred years ago and then there was slavery and then there was all these horrible things and, and they, if you don't talk about them, if you don't uh, make people study them carefully and accept your errors, you're going to commit them again and that's, I think, what we're seeing with the with the Trump presidency. All this all these things came back and it's again what we what we, what we talked about before that the empathy is is always easier when the person looks like you right like it's always easy to to allow that if you have a, a either a person that that resembles you or a person that resembles your dreams right like if my hopes and dreams are to one day be a billionaire then i'm just kinder to billionaires than i am to the poor people because maybe i just don't have to you know i don't see myself there even though the majority of people are are a few bad months away from being homeless, much more than they are a few good months away from being billionaires, right? But people don't don't see that they have this this idea, and then they there's just a lot more empathy for for crimes committed in the top than than in the than in the bottom, right? And I think that's a that's a huge problem. Do you think artificial intelligence can help us get rid of discrimination based on data also? Because I've studied abroad also, and you probably have this felt also, and we recently had this um, huge movement resurrect with Black Lives Matter with um, George Floyd and everything. What was your experience? Um, I hear Canada in comparison is way better than a lot of other places, but, you know, there's still times where you would think that, you know, you possibly are denied a promotion or a job based on the fact that you're an immigrant, but generally, do you think artificial intelligence can actually help us, you know, identifying those biases and preventing the um, coming doom or even historically repeating our mistakes? You know, I was in Auschwitz um, when I was a student back then, backpacking in Europe, and there was a wonderful thing 
on uh, on a wall written there. And I don't remember who said that, but it was like, history is uh, doomed to repeat itself if you do not learn from it. So do you think that technology gives us some hope? I hope so. I, yeah, I mean, I think, I think regardless of technology, the last few years, we've noticed a lot of things that we hadn't noticed before. All these movements, the Me Too movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, all this, and we need a lot more of those have been sort of awakening us because when you have privilege, you don't notice it, right? Like how many people have to see this until they go, oh yeah, this this people of a different gender or, or preference or race are suffering a lot more and I don't, I don't get to see it. So there's definitely that. As for how much artificial intelligence can help, I mean, I hope I hope it can. I mean, I hope um, I hope that by bringing education to everybody, we can just have a you know when when you have it when you have educated people, they believe less uh, less things. They they analyze more and they think more. I think if you can, my dream is to 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 give everybody the same opportunities of education and AI can definitely help there. So if you're able to spread the message and make people critical since the very beginning, then I think that can indirectly help in those in those causes. And I hope there are other ways. I haven't thought of other ways, but I, I really hope that that, that AI can, can help us build a, a better society in, in more than one ways. I think one of the ways in which you are contributing especially, and I have not seen that um, done very often uh, by other contributors that you're also making videos in Spanish, um, yeah. which is one of the uh, most spoken languages around the world. And I was just wondering yeah. why aren't there uh, many of those? So it, it's probably one of the fantastic ways of contributing back uh, to people who yeah. aren't, who don't have as, as good as you or didn't have the opportunities or didn't actually find um, the good good mentors um at right time um so that's such a wonderful contribution do you plan to make more of those thank you yes yes i think i i'd like to make all my videos in in spanish as well i've made a, a bunch of them and they're sort of lagging uh i i translate them i i, I make new videos in english and then translate into spanish so so uh, my goal is to have them all in spanish and i try to give as many talks as possible uh in spanish because yeah, you. I mean, many people uh, speak English, but many people don't. And even the ones who do, like learning something new, uh, it's much easier in your language because you're not trying to translate everything at the same time. Like your entire brain is focused on learning as opposed to half of it translating and you only get the other half to figure things out. So I, I definitely enjoy, that's one of my favorite things is to reach out uh, and uh, and talk to people in 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 spanish and and, and think people that are really needed and and that are able to get an opportunity uh with with free material and with online education and have ha just just seeing just seeing the stories of of people who who otherwise wouldn't have been able to 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 have to have had the opportunity and and succeed i think it's uh just makes everything worth do you plan to translate your book into spanish also uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. In the future. Now, how often do you go back home? Uh, I'm 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 right now here uh, in, in Colombia, but roughly every two years. I, I mm -hmm. try. Sometimes it's an average, but the variance is high. So sometimes I come a lot, and sometimes I spend a lot of times not. Uh, but I try. Um, for me, 
reverse a culture shock is a real thing. Um, when you meet your friends back home, now that you've lived most of your life outside Colombia, how does it feel in a good bank home, uh, meeting old friends, you know, walking the streets that you have done as children? Does it bring back memories? Oh, many, many. Yeah, it's it's a very interesting uh, experience because in some way I feel so much from here. Like I, like it makes me realize I, I, I feel like a stranger in most places because here I feel like so much like everyone else. But at the same time, when I open my mouth, I know I, 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 it's different, different. I, I have different ways of thinking and uh, different just ideas. And, and when I talk to my friends, we've had not better or worse, but just different experiences. And so we, we were so similar growing up. And right now we have, we have ideas that, that have changed so, so much that I, I find it uh, fascinating. It's like, it's like really feeling from here and not feeling from here all at the same time. It's like a superposition. Right? Do, do you go to bank? Do I go to work to the bank? Uh, to your mother's bank, you know, where you used to oh, go. Oh, I, I don't exist anymore. I think it got. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, it, yeah, it was. It was called Banco Cafetero, like Coffee Growers Bank, which is a very, very Colombian name for a bank. Um, I think it got bought by another bank, and now it's different. So the building now has a different name, and, and yeah. So no. But, okay. <laughs> Do you have a good coffee there also? Oh yeah. Oh, amazing. Really? Amazing. I was in Rwanda last year and, you know, oh, where's right. best coffee goes from there. And I was just wondering, I haven't been to South America um, yet. Um, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, so what would you recommend me to have uh, once I'm in Bogota? Yeah, I mean, definitely coffee. Uh, the the so Juan Valdez is pretty good. There's a coffee coffee chain that is, I think they, they get good coffee from, from here. Because a lot of the coffee here is from elsewhere because the coffee that's here is good. And so it, they sell it and they buy from other places. So I, you don't get the Colombian coffee everywhere. But certainly uh, uh, the, the, the coffee is very soft and it's it's very good. I actually have my in-laws had where actually they have a, an outside. They grow some coffee. And so I had coffee that was picked like a, two days ago, coffee that was picked and, and roasted right there in front of me. So it was nice. Delicious. Do you have any regrets in life? You know, some things that you wish you could have done, uh, but you didn't get the chance to do. Ah, uh, that's a great question. I, I mean, anything you learn is a regret, right? Because anything that I did in a certain way and I changed my mentality, I've changed my mentality a lot. Uh, become much more open-minded than I was uh, when I was young. When I just grew up in a society that wasn't. So yeah, things things I said or or things I I kind of half regretted and half very thankful that I that I think and act in different ways, right? Uh, things that I go would actually go back and change. I think I would try to learn different things, right? Like right now, I'm obsessed with learning every single different thing. Like I pick something up, and I used to not be like that. I would focus too much on one thing and leave other things on the side and. For example, math, I tried to learn all the math and not worry about other things. So I, I would go and learn, be more open about learning different things. Uh, but in general, you know, I think if you're learning and improving yourself, then that's uh, that, that process should never end and should just be, I'm happy about that. When I talk to people from mathematics and physics and, you know, by data, we know that they're one of the smartest people um, in terms of IQ. Uh, I've also found out that 
intelligence is a curse itself also um and it's very common uh, for people who are the cusp of um very productive work they tend to become very depressed and um, they it's very hard for them to forget the failures that they have in life um and i'm just wondering what is what are some of the strategies or the lessons for a younger version of you who's listening at the moment what would you tell him how to cope with failures and disappointments in life yeah oh great question i've had a lot of failures i mean two careers that that fail completely and i had to switch uh and i've in if you look at it from the past then you know they're complete wins because it made me switch like i i'm glad that i was not that i'm not better at at some things because if i was i'd be stuck in that doing it and not having fun right so i'm, I'm glad i was terrible at some things um but yeah i mean every every failure tells you something about just teaches you a lesson right and uh, this sounds cliche but it just could not be more true right like you learn more about yourself and you learn to uh, think you, you almost learn more from failures than from successes right so i i when people have failure i i, I say like this this may sound like like i'm trying to be cheesy here but there's something out of there and sometimes it's hard and from even for myself sometimes i i go gee i hope i one day figure out what was good about this particular thing because it sucks right but i think you also have to learn from from success and and unlearn a little bit you see many people like very famous or, or very people who have done a lot in technology from the players an example um who just are tremendously stubborn because that's what worked for them the first time right like he said okay i'm going to come up with this crazy idea and nothing's gonna convince me that that's not the way to go and that's how they succeeded and so i'm gonna do this every time well you still have to you know don't um like you still have to be careful and, and 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 check if that particular success was due entirely to what you did or to what you did plus a little bit of luck and then be be mindful of that and still be as bold as you can but but careful bold right so i try to i've had a lot of i've had successes where i took a risk or i had to take a risk because i was in no other uh, possibilities but many times took a random risk and it and it paid off and the next time i'm like more likely to take that risk and the next time even more likely but at some point i'm like okay i know i should i should first check if uh <laughs> it, you know be 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 mindful of that so i think you can learn a lot from your failures and and your successes do you yeah. think it has something to do with age also so i mean we know from personality psychology data that you know people tend to become less extrovert and open as they age and I'm just wondering, is it some kind of a biological response to um, continuously shelling yourself? At some point, you think, well, I've had it better than others, you know, let's be happy about it. You do. You do learn a lot. I mean, you appreciate you appreciate more and more things. I mean, I, I appreciate many things I've had all my life that now, right, that I didn't see at the time. So I'm much, much happier now, right? Um, and I think you do, you do become more of an extrovert every time because you, I think you just care less about pleasing others and just kind of more comfortable in your own skin. And, uh, yeah, also, I mean, 
fa facing when people face their greatest fears it's when they become braver right like if you if you have a failure and you if you have an idea of like what's the worst thing that can happen oh this and then boom something this happens and you're still alive then you're just stronger next time you're like okay what's the worst thing that can happen well you know i've been there i think i can you know i think you can handle it right so you, you get a little less a little more focused on the present and, and less on the future when you're extremely um tense or engrossed in your work and there the pressure is high and you are very um, irritated where do you find refuge is it are they longer walks or that's music or it's sports or your cartoons what's that long walks are definitely a, a great this seems to be so common among everyone that I talk. Even I do long walks. Yeah. What is that about long walks? I don't know. It just clears your mind. I think uh, I think I'm a little too ADD that I can just not do nothing, right? Like if I, but if I'm doing one thing, like walking, I can sort of clear my mind. Walking in the in the trees or something in the forest or uh, anything I can. It's uh, it's it's very useful. So that's that's my way. I tried, you know, meditation helps. Oh, really? Uh, what kind of meditation do you do? Else. No, I just do. I just meditate uh, normally. Like, okay. uh, yeah, I meditation. find it very helpful. Aligning, chakra aligning, things like that. I think it's very, very useful. Yeah. Mm. Uh, are you into Buddhism? No, I don't know enough about it, but I think it's a wonderful. I think it's it's a wonderful. Uh, uh, yeah. That's true. Um, what is your message for someone who's listening to you, who has been your student, who is your fan, who aspires to be you, um, who has learned from your story from a Colombian city into the best of the best uh, place to work um, with so much achievements in life? Um, there's got to be something powerful that you can share with other people um, now that you are wiser and older and smarter. <laughs> oh, thank you for the kind words. Um, I think finding your passion is the greatest gift. It's, it's the greatest thing that can happen. Of course, that's it takes a lot of trial and error. Uh, it takes a lot of not knowing. And I think we're not comfortable not knowing. But I think it's the best situation because it's when you learn the most. So I think I used to be wondering what, what to do in the future, what to do with my career. And I think I used to dread those moments, but they were wonderful because they made me explore. The moments where I knew what, was, what I was doing was when I wasn't growing that much. So find your, your passion. And I think it requires two things, the minor and the major, or sort of the, 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 the local and the global. What is the thing that you love to do in your personal time? like? Is it crossword puzzles? Fantastic. Like, what does it, what feels like the most fun thing to do with your own time? And then at the same time, the global, which is what world do you want to live in? Right? How do you want to make the world a better place? And have those two. And maybe one is here and one is here. Maybe they don't align, but constantly try to, you know, see if, if they align and try things. And if you can align those two things, then it's it's like the most wonderful feeling in the world. So the moment that I said, what do I like more than anything else, even if it's not profitable or what is the one thing I love? It's teaching. 
what is the world that I want to live in? It's a world where, where education is there for everybody, where everybody has the same access, no matter what, to all the best education there is. So we can all contribute the best in, into society. And when those two things came together, and it's like, oh, actually, that, that is the same thing. If you can search for that, then that is then that is jackpot, not just for you, but for those around you. So search for that and and don't listen to what society says. Society has a bunch of standards like making money or just those are not those are I mean it's good to have <laughs> to make money, but it's not the it's not them the main function to to be optimizing. It should be it should be your passion your your happiness and how much you can contribute to the world i think if i would summarize 12 years of my work and uh, my first book on um, personality psychology how i actually got into personality psychology and psychometrics that would be exactly the words that i would use um, that find your passion and align it with um, your circumstances and be happy in that a global one and a local one and you would never regret living um, another day. Um, this is why I actually created this um, personality test, which is Big Five, which is one of the most scientifically valid tests used for hundreds of years now. And I translated that into Urdu to help um, students in my university who are trying to struggle um, finding place in your life. Because when you're 19 or you're 20, everything seems plausible. And, you know, um, whatever everyone says, you're more inclined to please your parents, your friends, your colleagues being successful. And in all these questions, you kind of lose your original self and this oh. kind of actually helps them and the results are brilliant and this um, and i'm so happy that you know you're actually able to bring this perspective to them at an age where they need it the most and i think the essence of your work and your videos um and then on a bigger level of your life is that you know find what you're gifted with and you know use it and enhance it to make a better world what a fantastic way of putting that. Thank you so much for being much. with us, Louis. It's, well, it's such a candid conversation. Um, and you know, one of the reasons I started this podcast was to actually help out my students, bringing them um, people like you who would inspire them to become great scientists and researchers or thinkers, even a better person. Um, and it's always a pleasure when I get to talk to you or other people who powerfully delivered the message that I'm trying to convey to them. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having It's an honor to speak with you and it's been a wonderful time. I think we had a really, really fun chat. So thank you very much. Indeed. And thank so you everyone. Day. And I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you. Bye-bye.